Chapter 11 of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Francis Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 My Firstborn Child. Successful, however, as Miss Dix had been in providing for the immediate exigency in Rhode Island through an appeal to private charity, she soon saw with increasing clearness the utter inadequacy of such measures to afford relief on the scale that was imperatively demanded. The farther she pushed her investigations, the vaster and more widespread was discovered to be the evil to be coped with. Comparatively few of the states of the Union had as yet any state asylums. The power of public taxation, on a scale adequate to the work to be accomplished, must now, she felt, be evoked. More even than this, the people of the states must be wrought to a pitch of enlightenment and mercy at which they would feel willing and glad to be taxed. It was in the state of New Jersey, and with the foundation of the asylum at Trenton, that Miss Dix began this, her far larger and more characteristic work, the work no longer of supplementing the deficiencies of institutions already existing, but of creating institutions de novo and out of nothing. There in Trenton was it that she went through the travail of bearing beneath her heart what she ever after characterized as her first-born child, owing its whole life to her as mother. There, forty-five years later, was she herself, worn out with toil, age, and disease, to die and apartments gratefully tendered for her free use by the trustees of the institution. And there, in those last days of weariness and pain, was it that, when one morning her faithful friend and physician, Dr. John W. Ward, the superintendent of the asylum, came into her room with the joyful intelligence that he was father of his first-born child, she broke out, yes, and born under the roof of my first-born child. As the work of Miss Dix, in first breaking ground in the state of New Jersey, in creating there a new and effective public sentiment, and in finally getting this sentiment embodied in positive legislative action, was alike in its tactics, its courage, its persistence, and its power of moral ascendancy, the same which she repeated so marvelously in a whole round of states. It seems best to treat this as a typical instance of her constant rule of action, and to go somewhat circumstantially into the story of the nature of the helps and hindrances she there as everywhere encountered. To attempt the same of all the great public institutions of which she was single-handed the founder would be to fill many volumes. One example, vividly conceived, will suffice the reader for all. First and foremost, 
she went forth quietly and alone. No trumpet announced that a distinguished philanthropist was about to probe to the bottom the moral condition of the state, to champion the oppressed, and to prove a terror to evildoers. Here was no excitable novice in hunting, noisily scaring up the game before the piece was charged and the finger on the trigger ready to shoot. In truth, few knew, or so much as suspected, the fact that a quietly dressed woman was moving about from county to county, taking notes of the condition of every jail and almshouse. Thus, foul secrets that would have been carefully hidden away from regularly appointed committees, stopping first tumultuously to dine and wine at the public tavern, were contemptuously exposed to this unheralded, supposedly uninfluential woman. Meanwhile, nothing escaped her trained eye and before people dreamed what she was doing she had gathered her statistics and was master of the position she now had her fulcrum and her archimedes lever through which she felt she could lift a world of moral apathy this preliminary work done and thoroughly done the second resort of miss dix was always to her power of direct personal influence over the leaders of the social and political world. A born leader herself, her instinct for detecting the gift of leadership in others was well-nigh infallible. Her insight into character, says of her Dr. P. Bryce, superintendent of the asylum at Tuscaloosa, Alabama, was truly marvelous, and I have never met anyone, man or woman, who bore more distinctly the mark of intellectuality. For large numbers of self-supposed men of weight and influence, she entertained a quiet, well-disguised contempt. Well-disguised, however, it always was. They never found it out. She was careful to make no enemies whenever she could help it, for so thoroughly did she identify herself with her cause, as to feel that enmity to her would mean enmity to it. Many and many the humble country member of the legislature, a man of few words, but those words rocks, who was recognized by her, if for no other quality but honest stubbornness in maintaining a position once taken, as in reality a more important factor to be reckoned with than a score of noisy, bustling politicians. Especially among the plain Quakers of New Jersey, men and women did she recruit stanch supporters, who once enlisted never deserted the ranks. From the moment, however, when it became the question of practically engineering a bill through the legislature, then it was another matter, and she imperatively insisted on putting the full management into the hands of men of first-rate political ability, men humane, indeed, and sincerely interested, but men abreast with every device and trick of the enemy. 
her memorial once written, charged to the cannon's mouth with grape and canister, and behind it the explosive fulminate of her own latent passion, then the question of who should touch off the piece, to recur to Dr. Howe's apt figure of speech, whether someone who would aim at nothing and hit nothing, or someone who should discharge it straight into the thickest ranks, was to her an issue, as all-important as, with Napoleon or Nelson, that of who should handle his artillery or point his broadsides. Just here, in the profound influence she exercised over many of these leaders, and in her consequent power to secure from them the most chivalrous service, lay one marked secret of Miss Dix's unexampled success. By a sure instinct of compassion, she speedily found her way into the heart of every household where affliction was on hand. There was, it might be, an invalid wife in the home, or a young daughter wasting away with disease, or a promising son blighted on the threshold of life by threatened or actual insanity. Into these households she stole, an angel of consolation, her sustaining power in all hours of darkness and pain a marvel to those uplifted by it. At last came the day when this was remembered in some memorable act. Let a single example of how remembered suffice. The especial case here instanced was communicated to the writer of this biography by Dr. Eugene Grissom, superintendent of the insane asylum at Raleigh, North Carolina, and though occurring in another state than New Jersey, still illustrates a frequently repeated experience in Miss Dix's efforts at passing her hospital bills. Quote, the first appropriation bill looking to the erection of an asylum in north carolina was defeated mrs dobbin wife of hon james c dobbin of fayetteville afterwards secretary of the navy was very sick at raleigh her husband was a member of the house on her deathbed she expressed to miss dix her deep gratitude for the tender care that noble woman had given her in her own illness, and almost with her dying breath begged her gifted husband to repay her own debt of gratitude to Miss Dix by another effort to pass the asylum bill. Almost as soon as the last sad services of interment were ended, Mr. Dobbin entered the house, clad in the deepest mourning and broken with sorrow. He entered at once on the fulfillment of the duty he owed to the pious dead and the afflicted living. Feeling keenly his own bereavement, and cherishing sympathy for the woes of others, sustained by the profound sympathy that moved every bosom, he redeemed nobly his last promise to a dying wife, by a speech which made a great impression at the time, and the tradition of which has descended to this generation. All was favorable to the orator. His own nature was moved 
to its very depths. His heart was softened and made tender by a distressing bereavement. Gratitude to Miss Dix, deep sympathy for the smitten of God, a yearning desire to help the unfortunate, all moved the gifted and generous North Carolinian, and he rose to the great demands of the occasion and the height of the argument, producing an oration rarely equaled. All opposition disappeared under the power of the eloquent and pathetic pleader, and the bill passed by an overwhelming vote. End quote. Almost from the start of Miss Dix's career in her work of carrying the state legislatures, so profound was the impression made by her exceptional personality that in a special room or a separate alcove in the library was habitually set apart for her, in which to be visited by the members. There she studied with eager scrutiny the list of the representatives in the assembly, endeavoring to find out, as far as possible, the character of each for humanity or self-seeking, courage or servility to public opinion. Before very long she knew them thoroughly, many of them far more thoroughly than they ever knew themselves. She did not, however, herself enter the halls of legislation, nor seek interviews of the members in their homes or in the lobbies. Always she laid great stress on preserving her womanly dignity, and saw plainly how easy it was to vulgarize alike a cause and its representative by a pushing and teasing demeanor. Members of either house were brought in by influential friends to her own room or alcove, and there she wrought on them in every way of cogent argument and eloquent entreaty. The only exception to this, of a slightly more public nature, was her habit of inviting into the parlor of her boarding-house from fifteen to twenty gentlemen at a time for conversation and discussion. When once her memorial had been read to the legislature, and then, through the medium of the newspapers, had been brought before the general public, she next worked with energy the instrumentality of the press writing for it innumerable articles herself, and enlisting in the same service all who wielded eloquent pens. To rouse all over the state a powerful public opinion was an aim she never lost sight of, no one knowing more clearly the subserviency to it of politicians. To return now, from these more general statements of Miss Dix's methods, to the immediate case of the passage of the New Jersey Bill, which ushered into the world her first-born asylum child. It was first on January 23, 1845, that her memorial to the legislature of New Jersey was presented to the Senate by Miss Dix's stanch supporter, Honorable Joseph S. Dodd. Like all her public papers, it was written with great ability, and embodied a judicious blending of pathetic appeal with strong, rational argument. Less nakedly terrible than the Massachusetts Memorial, 
it was more tender in its spirit, fuller, indeed, of the comforting hope of the redeeming purgatorio than of the despair of the rayless inferno. Gleams of light are thrown on the gratitude in the hearts of the poor sufferers for the smallest attempts to alleviate their miseries, as will be seen in the following extracts. Quote, one whom I was so fortunate as to have removed to a situation of greater comfort, and to supply with some of the common necessaries of common life, said, raising his trembling arms reverently, God's Spirit bids this message to you, saying it is his work you are doing. Lo, it shall prosper in your hands. Another, a female, whose scarred limbs bore marks of the cankering iron war for many weary years, said, I could curse those who chain me like a brute beast, and I do, too. But sometimes the soft voice says, Pray for thine enemy, and this it sings often, while the sun shines on the poor mind. But darkness comes, and then the thoughts are evil continually, and the soul is black. End quote. How farther all classes, rich as well as poor, highly intellectual as well as feeble-minded, are exposed alike to the visitation of this fearful scourge was strikingly illustrated by instances of which the following gives a touching example. Quote, On a level with the cellar in a basement room, which was tolerably decent, but bare enough of comforts, lay, upon a small bed, a feeble aged man, whose few gray locks fell tangled about his pillow. As we entered, he addressed one present, saying, I am all broken up, all broken up. Do you feel much weaker then, Judge? The mind, the mind is going, almost gone, responded he, in tones of touching sadness. Yes, he continued, murmuring to himself, the mind is going. This feeble, depressed old man, a pauper, helpless, lonely, and yet conscious of surrounding circumstances, and not now wholly oblivious of the past, this feeble old man, who was he? I answer as I was answered, but he is not unknown to many of you. In his young and vigorous years, he filled various places of honor and trust among you. His ability as a lawyer raised him to the bench. As a jurist, he was distinguished for uprightness, clearness, and impartiality. He also was judge of the orphan's court. He was for many years a member of the legislature. His habits were correct and I could learn from those who had known him for many years nothing to his discredit, but much that commends men to honor and respect. The meridian of an active and useful life was past. The property, honestly acquired, 
on which he relied for comfortable support during his declining years was lost through some of those fluctuations which so often produce reverses for thousands. He became insane, and his insanity assumed the form of frenzy. He was chained for safety. End quote. The memorial, once presented to the Senate, as above stated, by Honorable Joseph S. Dodd, was followed by him with the immediate preamble and resolution, quote, Whereas the expediency of erecting a state lunatic asylum, having been at various times under the consideration of the legislature of this state, and it appearing by the facts now before us in relation to this subject that we greatly need such an establishment therefore resolved by the senate and general assembly of the state of new jersey that the time has now arrived when it is the duty of the state to enter upon the execution of this work by the adoption of the necessary measures for that purpose during the present session of the legislature. This was read and ordered to lie on the table for the present. The next day, Mr. Dodd saw it to be necessary to modify the previous resolution by calling for a joint committee of both houses for farther consideration of the subject. The resolution was passed, and Messrs. Dodd, Wirtz, and Willits were appointed on the part of the Senate, and later on, Messrs. Evans, Bond, Pearson, and Fort on the part of the House of Assembly. By February 25th, the Joint Committee made their report. They declared it unnecessary for them to occupy farther time as they could only repeat what is better said in the memorial of mystics which presents the whole subject in so lucid a manner as to supersede the necessity of farther remark from us the report concluded with the following fervid appeal quote, is then our path any longer doubtful have we not every indication by the facts in our possession that the time has now arrived for entering at once upon this enterprise so dear to the philanthropist the christian and the patriot and inseparably connected with the welfare of those for whom it is designed an enterprise whose beneficent operation will be felt not only by this but by generations to come after us, and, as we hope, through all future time, an enterprise that will reflect more lasting honor on the state and tell more upon human happiness than all our legislation for the last half-century. We are behind the movements of the age and the spirit of the times. Let us be up and doing." we are behind our sister states many of them have already moved forward in this field of humane exertion with a zeal and liberality that do them honor and shall we jerseymen who are proud of the name be left far in the distance or not move at all sitting still with our arms folded in inglorious sloth satisfied if we can reap though partially 
the benefit of their labors, rather than provide for ourselves those privileges for which we are now dependent on them? End quote. In Miss Dix's habitual experience, in dealing with state legislatures, so thoroughly had at this stage of the proceedings the preliminary work been done that, as a rule, the higher-minded members of both houses and the more enlightened portion of the community might now be relied on as genuine converts to the measure. Just at this point, however, usually began the real tug-of-war with another class of minds. After the first outburst of generous enthusiasm, a reaction was sure to set in. However pitiful the hearts of constituents, still every bill involving inevitable increase of taxation is sure to search those acutely sensitive nerves that have their terminal peripheries in the pocket. Now comes the chance of the demagogue, eager to make capital out of his championship of the interests of an already overburdened public, now the day of fear and quaking to the timid member who feels his chance of re-election at stake should he venture to vote for the proposed measure. By the way, said at a later date to Miss Dix, a friend with whom she was talking, a gentleman of the house told me that the biggest gun that was leveled to defeat his re-election was the fact of having voted to publish your memorial. What did he answer? Why, that he would have been proud of such a defeat. But large numbers were of a more lowly frame of mind, and felt no such lofty pride in the prospect of political martyrdom. Here, then, was the crisis in which mystics always found the severest and most unremitting work imposed upon her. She was up every morning before sunrise, writing letters and editorials. Through all the hours of the session she was holding private interviews with members. In the evenings, as often as possible, she was arguing with and entreating a company of fifteen to twenty specially invited to her parlor, generally the most obstinate cases to deal with. Only at midnight did she seek her pillow. It was exhausting work, for on her individual power to ray out light enough to illuminate ignorant minds and to radiate heat and glow enough to kindle the apathetic turned the whole issue. A glimpse into her own hours, alike of depression and of joy, is caught in the following letter of this date to her friend Mrs. Hare of Philadelphia. Quote, I must write to you. I must have your sympathy. How I long for your heart-charming smile. Just now I need calmness. I am exhausted under this perpetual effort and exercise of fortitude. At Trenton, thus far, all is prosperous. But you cannot imagine the labor of conversing and convincing some evenings i had at once twenty gentlemen for three hours steady conversation the last evening a rough country member who had announced in the house 
that the wants of the insane in New Jersey were all humbug, and who came to overwhelm me with his arguments, after listening an hour and a half with wonderful patience to my details and to principles of treatment, suddenly moved into the middle of the parlor and thus delivered himself. Ma'am, I bid you good night. I do not want, for my part, to hear anything more. The others can stay if they want to. I am convinced. You've conquered me out and out. I shall vote for the hospital. If you'll come to the house and talk there, as you've done here, no man that isn't a brute can stand you. And so, when a man's convinced, that's enough. The Lord bless you. And thereupon he departed. End quote. No doubt Miss Dix went to bed that night in a happy and grateful frame of mind. In these individual victories, constantly repeated, lay the hiding place of her power. But there remained always a plenty of material needing conversion, and, quite as likely as not, she would wake up the following morning only to read in the newspaper report of the debate of the preceding day a speech from an unterrified member like the following quote, Sir, I shall not trust the estimate of these commissioners who have devised the plan of this Egyptian Coliseum. New Jersey has hitherto acted well. She has kept clear of a national debt, which some folks call a national blessing. Let us husband our resources. I had rather spend the money in educating the children of the state, qualifying them to act their part well in life, and preparing them for eternity. There'll be a day of account, and it's not far ahead. I have seldom prophesied on this floor, but it turned out correct true, I missed it last year. I do believe that if that Miss Dix had been paid five hundred or six hundred dollars and escorted over the Delaware or to Philadelphia or even one thousand dollars and taken to Washington City and, if you choose, enshrined in the White House, it would have been money well laid out. Now I should like the whys and wherefores for a building 487 feet long and 80 feet wide for maybe 20 lunatics. I believe that the best thing we could do would be to appropriate 200 or $300 to fill up the cellars and sow them over with grass seed so that the spot may not be seen hereafter. You couldn't do a more popular act. End quote. Unquestionably, the report of a speech like this was read with as lively satisfaction by an elect class of its author's constituents, and was as highly applauded for its combination of a soaring imagination with a strict eye to business, as the honorable member could himself have desired. But this was not the kind of oratory nor was this the type of man of whom Miss Dick stood in any sort of fear. A few solid words from the plain country member, who the night before had said, Ma'am, 
you've conquered me out and out, I'll vote for the hospital. Would, she knew, dispose effectually of a full hour of such spread-eagle eloquence. The man, however, of whom she did always stand in dread, was the man of great natural flux of sentimental speech, who from the outset insinuated himself into the minds of his audience as the friend and champion of all the world's disinherited ones, never failing likewise to make effusive allusion to herself as that heaven-sent angel of mercy, and yet who forthwith proceeded to insist that now, alas, the exigency had arrived when it was the stern dictate of duty to control such sensibilities, even though with bleeding hearts they should feel obliged to vote against the bill before them. It may be well, therefore, in commenting on these various legislative experiences to which Miss Dix had to adjust herself, to give a specimen of the kind of speech and the kind of man she always felt to be most dangerous. The speech in question was not delivered before the New Jersey legislature, but at another period and in another state. Still, it is one of those clear-cut, polished gems of eloquence which perfectly illustrates the case in hand. Quote, Senators, the liberal man, saith Solomon, deviseth liberal things, and by liberal things shall he prosper. To this sentiment I respond, and hold it to be true no less of states than individuals. None, sir, is a firmer friend than myself to this charity, but, sir, my experience, limited as it is, has taught me that the same law governs in the moral as in the physical world, and that premature development is attended by premature decay. It becomes us, therefore, to be borne away by no childlike sensibility, no generous enthusiasm, no overzeal nor haste to accomplish an acknowledged good. Under these views and feelings, therefore, I am constrained, Mr. President, at this time, to oppose this project under every aspect it may now assume before us. In conclusion, I should do injustice to my feelings if I omitted this occasion to express my unlimited admiration of the distinguished zeal and ability with which this measure has been prosecuted by the remarkable lady who, it is but due to her to say, has been its chief promoter and friend. Woman, Mr. President, is ever lovely, and when she assumes the rare and sacred office of disinterested philanthropy, she becomes indeed an angel. To be called an angel, and in the same breath have her bill for the relief of the outcasts of the earth voted down, was a strain of celestial compliment for which Miss Dix never manifested a trace of feminine relish. Much more delicately did she appreciate the testimonial of a rough-and-ready proposition to raise five hundred or six hundred dollars to escort her over the Delaware or to Philadelphia 
or even $1,000 to enshrine her in the White House, for this proved demonstratively that she was making so strong an impression that low-minded men felt it was worth thirty pieces of silver to get rid of affording her any further chance to deceive the people. To conclude now this full and detailed account of the passage of the bill for the establishment of the New Jersey State Lunatic Asylum, an account which, as before stated, must serve for a typical instance of the helps and hindrances encountered by mystics in all her widespread and marvelously successful legislative work. By March 14, 1845, the act of authorization was taken up and read for the last time, and the proposition to postpone farther action till the next session of the legislature voted down in the Senate eyes two, nays sixteen. Upon the question, shall this bill now pass? Eyes eighteen, nays none. March 20th, certain amendments were proposed by the House of Assembly, to which, March 24th, the Senate agreed. Then, March 25th, the reengrossed bill passed. Eighteen eyes, nays, none. The victory was absolute. The state had covered itself with glory. Immediately, Honorable Joseph S. Dodd sent in word to Miss Dix, anxiously yet confidently awaiting intelligence in her room, quote, Senate Chamber, New Jersey. I am happy to announce to you the passage unanimously of the bill for the New Jersey State Lunatic Asylum. End quote. It was in her mind's eye alone that Miss Dix could as yet see the full meaning of this vote. So far, only a castle in the air was it at whose ideal foundations and superstructure she had thus been working. The stately buildings, the ample and beautiful grounds with their grass slopes trees flowers and sparkling fountains the quiet home-like wards the wise and tender care that were to take home to their arms so many of the friendless and wretched all these benedictions which were to spring from the victory she had won had as yet neither a local habitation nor a name but she was one of those highly favored ones who believe without seeing nay one of that exceptional class of consecrated workers for humanity who are permitted to behold their most high-wrought visionary ideals finally materialized before their eyes in a corresponding real and actual the day was drawing on when in twenty different states she was to see with the bodily eye such an outward and tangible witness of the power of her own inner life as is rarely given to a mortal to behold verily thou wast a mighty builder before the lord is the exclamation involuntarily wrung from the mind of any one who following her footsteps from state to state, enters, one after another, the beautiful parks, and traverses the halls and wards 
of the immense structures she, with the Aladdin's lamp of her own moral genius, summoned into being. Very easy is it, then, to appreciate the enthusiasm with which her friend, Dr. S. G. Howe, wrote to her from Boston on July 15th of this year, 1845. Quote, As for you, my friend, what shall I say to you to express my feelings respecting your course since I have seen you personally? Nothing, for words would fail me. And besides, you want not words of human praise. I look back at the time when the whisperings of maiden delicacy made you hesitate about obeying the stern voice of conscience. I recollect what you were then. I think of your noble career since, and I say, God grant me to look back upon some three years of my life with a part of the self-approval you must feel. I ask no higher fortune. No one need say to you, go on, for you have heard a higher than any human voice, and you will follow whither it calleth. God give you as much strength as you have courage for your mission. End, quote. End of chapter 11